Are you a confident Christian? Are you a Christian who is resting in the assurance of salvation? Or are you one of those Christians who are on an emotional roller coaster ride, which includes moments of assurance, followed by fearful apprehensions that cause many to question the security of their salvation? Are you certain that our Savior is going to eventually receive you as that good and faithful servant who is invited to enter into the joy of the Lord? Or are you less than confident that Christ is going to embrace you on the day you stand before him? Now listen, if you're struggling to answer these questions and you're still not sure, well, it's my hope that this study today will help you to become a Christian who is confident in what Christ has accomplished. With this as the goal, it'll help you to know that the Christians who are wrestling with the assurance of salvation are those who are typically focused on their own works rather than on the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're focusing on your works and your uh, attempt at maintaining your walk with the Lord, well, uh, you're going to have good days and bad days. You're going to have days of assurance and you're going to have days of doubt. If you're focused on Christ and his finished work, well, then we can rest in assurance every single day because Christ has accomplished the good work necessary for our salvation. And with that being the case, I just want to spend some time this morning considering the way that Paul's confidence regarding his own salvation was centered in Jesus Christ. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that Christ provides confidence through the prospect of salvation. Secondly, we'll learn that Christ provides confidence through the promise of glorification. And thirdly, we'll see that Christ provides confidence through the progress of sanctification. And with this as the outline, well, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, because here we find Paul describing the confidence that he had in Christ Jesus. Now, as you make your way to the first chapter of Philippians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul began this book by encouraging the hearts of the Christians who were there at the church in Philippi. And while it's possible that there were some who were wrestling with doubts about their own salvation, Paul assured them that he himself was confident about their conversion. And not only that, but he also took the time to, co- to, to convince them that the Lord was going to complete the good work that he began in them. And isn't that nice to know? That the Lord is going to complete the good work that he begins in the life of every born-again believer. Well, now here in our text today, we find Paul. He's continuing to explain the confidence that he had in Christ. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Philippians chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 19, because here Paul declares, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing may be uh, more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Well, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that Christians can have complete confidence in Christ Jesus. And this is great news because, listen, according to a 2017 Barna poll, uh, this study shows us that when it comes to our religious beliefs, most born-again believers struggle with doubt from time to time. According to this study, there's about 65% of U.S. Christians who admitted to having doubts about their beliefs. 
And while 53% of the respondents said that their faith became stronger due to their experience with doubt, well, another 12% of the respondents said that they lost their faith after giving in to their own doubts. That's sad, knowing that 12% of people who responded to that poll just walked away from their faith because they didn't take the time to deal with their doubts and gain confidence in Christ Jesus. And knowing that most Christians will wrestle with doubt from time to time, we ought to take some time today to consider the confidence that Paul had as he looked forward to the day of his deliverance. And with this as the focus, let's back up and take a closer look at the statement that he makes there in verse 19. It's there where again he declares, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Holy Spirit or of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, it might interest you to know here that the word deliverance has nothing to do with the movie back in the 80s. We don't want to go down that road. Now, this word deliverance is translated from the Greek word soteria, and soteria is actually the basis for our theological word soteriology. Just to be clear, soteriology, this is the branch of theology that focuses on the study of salvation. And with that being the case, Paul uses this word soteria uh, in reference to his deliverance. And in the immediate context, he's probably talking about his deliverance from prison. And yet in the greater context, he's clearly talking about his salvation from this wicked world. I like the way that the scholars who created the legacy standard Bible render verse 19, they put it like this. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul was not only desiring to be delivered from that Roman prison cell that he was writing this epistle from, but he was also looking forward to the day when he would finally be saved from this wicked world, that he would finally be delivered from this, this place in which we dwell, this, this fallen state in which we live. And what this means is that he was completely confident then in the future salvation that Jesus provides to those who trust in him. In order to better understand the confidence that Paul had in the salvation that the Lord had promised, I want to spend a little bit more time considering the meaning of this word soteria. I'm sure we all realize that this Greek word soteria refers to the salvation that believers enjoy at this very present moment. Every Christian here this morning has been saved. We've already been saved. And, and listen, this salvation occurs at the moment when we trust in Jesus Christ because it's at that moment when we are judicially justified by faith in Jesus Christ. At the moment of our repentance and our faith in Jesus Christ, the gavel bangs and the Lord declares that we are justified, which is to say it's just as if I'd never sinned. We are saved at that moment, positionally. At the same time, the word soteria is also used in reference to the future salvation, which believers will eventually experience when we finally depart from this plane of existence. And in this sense, soteria refers to the sum of benefits and blessings that Christians eventually enjoy as we finally enter into the eternal kingdom of God and stand there in the presence of our Savior with our resurrected body. And so there are verses that talk about the salvation that we already have. And this, these verses refer to the soteria, the salvation that occurs when we are justified before the Lord. And yet there are also soteriological verses that point to a future salvation. The Greek word soteria refers to the justification and the glorification of the believer then, the, the present possession and the future fulfillment of our salvation. And what this means then is that those who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ will also be glorified by the same faith as we enter into the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to talk more about glorification in our second point, but for now, I just want to point out that the born-again believer can be completely con confident in the future state of our salvation. And the reason why is because we've presently been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And in order to further make my case, I want to consider the source of Paul's confidence. And with this as the focus, if you will, let's take one more look here at verse 19. Here again, Paul declares, For I know 
that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Listen, Paul's not wondering here. He's not wishfully thinking that maybe, just maybe, he might be saved. No, he says, I know. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. He was certain of his salvation, and one reason why was because he knew that the Spirit of Christ Jesus would deliver him from the difficulties of this world on the day when he entered into the presence of the Lord. And just to be clear, it'll help us to know that the infinite Spirit of Christ Jesus dwells within the immaterial heart of those who trust in him. That's right. The Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells within the immaterial heart of the born-again believer. And to prove my point, I want to take a moment to remind you of a statement that Paul made in Colossians chapter 1. It's in verse 27 where he declares, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you. The Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling within you, Christian, is the hope of glory or glorification, which will uh, take place in the future. The infinite spirit of Christ Jesus is dwelling within the, within the immaterial heart of those who trust in him. And not only that, but listen, it's in 1 John chapter 4 where the apostle John also assures us that God abides in those who confess Christ Jesus. That's interesting. So the, the spirit of Christ Jesus dwells within the believer and God abides in those who confess Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 14, Jesus also informs us that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit indwell those who love Jesus Christ. And to sum it all up with simplicity, the born-again believer has become the temple of the triune God. And with that being the case, you might like to know that the Spirit of Christ who dwells within the believer has ensured our salvation according to his perfect plan. And not only that, but listen, the indwelling Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has also become the guarantee of our salvation. And I want to consider how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's verses 21 and 22 where he tells us that, that he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Christian, listen, the Holy Spirit has become the guarantee of our salvation. And just to be clear, that word guarantee is translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to a down payment which serves as a promissory pledge that secures the purchased possession until it's completely redeemed. Like when you put a down payment down on a house. You know, you put down a huge chunk of change that says, hey, I'm committed to this purchase and I'm going to make the payments until it's finally paid off and the house is redeemed. In light of this, it's no wonder then that Paul was completely confident in the prospect of his salvation because he recognized that the Holy Spirit had sealed him and had become the down payment or the guarantee that the purchased possession, which is Paul, would eventually be fully redeemed. With that, I want to consider again how he puts it here in our text today. So if you would look with me again at Philippians chapter 1, we'll back up and begin reading once again at verse 19 where he declares, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now listen, the phrase there in verse 20, earnest expectation, that phrase is translated from a Greek word, which is used of those who have an intense and persistent anticipation of something that they are waiting for. Not something that they're wishing for, something that they're waiting for. Paul's saying, hey, I have an intense and persistent anticipation of, of Christ Jesus being magnified in my body, both while I live here on the earth and in death when I'm finally glorified. Not only that, but the word hope there in the middle of verse 20, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of the believers who have a joyful 
and a confident expectation of eternal salvation. Hope isn't like, I, I wish it be, to be true, so hopefully, hopefully if, I, if I read Oprah's secret enough and, and really believe it, and nope. This is a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation as we count on Christ to fulfill all of his promises. With that, we can see that Paul wasn't wondering if he was eventually going to be delivered. No, instead he fully expected it, and he expected it with joyful confidence Not because of his works, but because of Jesus Christ and his promises. Now, in light of Paul's example, we should take a moment to examine our own faith by asking, am I joyfully confident in the prospect of my salvation, or am I still dealing with doubt every other day? And listen, if it's true that you're still filled with doubts about your own salvation, then the question that you ought to ask yourself is this, who am I trusting in? If you're doubting your salvation, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the promises he's made? Or are you still trying to work your way to heaven? Listen, if you're trying to work your way to heaven, then it's no wonder why you doubt your salvation every other day. Because why? Well, sometimes we're really walking in line with the Lord and sometimes not so much. And if your confidence is found in your own flesh, well, you're not going to be very confident at all. With that, I encourage you. I encourage you to realize that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that we can add to the cross of Christ. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, which includes sanctification, which occurs by faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can bring to the table to add to that. And those who trust in Jesus Christ can then be completely confident in the prospect of salvation because every born-again believer has already been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I like the way that Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 1. There in verses 13 and 14, he declares, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until when? Until you stumble back into sin? Nope. Until you finally you know, realize that, that you're good enough? Nope. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Paul was assuring his audience there in Ephesus about the way in which the Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee, and it's here in this passage where he expands upon this prospect of this promise by assuring the Christian that this guarantee of the Holy Spirit has sealed us until the final redemption of the purchased possession and seeing how the born-again believer has been purchased with the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ then we should be confident. We should be confident. Why would Jesus Christ spill his blood to pay our ransom, only to then turn around and say, yeah, but you know, we're not going to do it. We're not, we're not going to fulfill this. We're not going to redeem this person. Why would he do that? He spilt his blood for us, Christian. He paid the ransom and promised to redeem us and gave us the Holy Spirit as a down payment to guarantee this. Can we not have confidence in this? I do. I'm completely confident that Christ Jesus will redeem us according to the gospel of salvation. And to sum it up with simplicity, Christ provides confidence to every Christian through the prospect of salvation, which is guaranteed by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. What this also means then is that Christ provides confidence through the promise of glorification. Because if you're sealed until the day of redemption, then you're also confident in your glorification. And and to further explain what I mean, let's turn our attention back to the point that Paul's making here in Philippians chapter 1. If you would look with me there, uh, we'll begin reading again at verse 21. Here Paul declares, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. 
Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul describing his death as gain. I love that. He says, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And just to be clear, you know, Paul isn't referring to the capital gains that come from good investments. He's certainly not referring to the physical gains that gym rats are trying to achieve. No, instead, Paul was referring to the glorious gain that takes place when we enter into eternal glory, or in other words, enter into our glorified state. It's at that point in time when we receive our everlasting inheritance, which Paul describes as being incorruptible and undefiled, and it does not fade away. Peter also describes it in the same way. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. That's where the apostle declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Christian, listen, those who are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, well, they eventually receive an incorruptible and undefiled inheritance, which is currently being reserved for us there in heaven. I can't wait to cash in. And I know Peter and Paul were both thinking the same thing. According to the Lord Jesus, this heavenly treasure is protected from degradation, from devaluation, and even from the devious schemes of thieves who want to rob us of our wealth. Now, with all this in mind, those who trust in Christ can then declare with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, those who are living for Christ today will realize that when we die, that, that we're going to cash in on all the rewards that we're going to receive for serving the Lord in this world. And I have no doubt that Paul was ready for this. Paul was ready to, to end his race. And, and, you know, as we consider all the things that, that Paul experienced, I mean, he was being persecuted, he was being prosecuted. And, and, and here in Philippians, as he's writing from that Roman cell, you know, he's just like, I'm ready to go. I know it's going to get better. And so he was ready. Let's consider the way he explains it here in Philippians chapter 1. Look with me again at verse 22. There he declares, If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. Now, Paul here seems to be torn between his desire to go and be with Jesus and his desire to stay and serve our Savior, which would result in more fruit and greater rewards. And so he's like, He's like saying, I'm ready to cash in on my, my rewards, but um, I could also stick around and you know, earn some more and, and continue serving the Lord and increasing my inheritance there in heaven. But as we consider these options, you know, Paul here seems to be struggling with these options, and the reason why is due to the fact that he was ready to finish his race so that he could receive those heavenly rewards, and yet at the same time, he realizes that there was still much more for him to accomplish while he's here in this world. And I want to consider how Paul puts it there beginning at verse 23. There again, he declares, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's describing his desire to depart so that he could go be with Jesus Christ. And we must not fail to notice the confidence that he's communicating as he assures his audience there in Philippi that it is far better it is far better to dwell with Jesus than it is to deal with all the difficulties of this depraved world. And just to be clear, that word better, uh, it's translated from a Greek word which means more excellent or more advantageous. And in light of this definition, we can be certain that Paul's confidence, well, he was confident in the fact that it was going to get better in the afterlife. He was certain and confident that life was going to get better in the afterlife. Do you believe that? Are you confident of this? You know, there's many people in the world today who are afraid to die because they don't know what's going to happen in the afterlife. They don't know if it's going to get better. Are they just going to be worm dirt? Are they going to hell? People don't know. 
So there's no confidence. They're afraid of death because they don't know what's going to happen afterwards. Paul was saying, I know it's going to get better. I know it's going to be better than what's happening here in this world. This was precisely the point that he was making in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he declares we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord where we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul was a man who was confident in the prospect of his salvation. And not only that, but he was also confident in the promise of eternal glorification as he looked forward to, to the day when everything would get better. Sometimes we, we wish we could, we could wake up, you know, go to sleep tonight. It's a horrible day. I just want to go to sleep tonight, and then I'll wake up in the morning and things will get better. And then you wake up in the morning. No, nope. all your problems still there, and you've got a crick in your neck. You know, it's like, ah, oh, doesn't get better, does it? Sometimes it gets a little better. But Paul was confident that as soon as he was in the presence of his Savior, everything was going to get exponentially better. And it's for this reason that he was looking forward to the day when he would receive his glorified body in the presence of the Lord. Because, you know, the glorified body is never going to hurt. The glorified body is never going to be sick. The glorified body is is never going to be in a state of depression and these sorts of things. It's going to get better for the believer. At the same time, as he was looking forward to that day that he would receive his glorified body, he was still willing to remain in the flesh of his earthly body uh, and for the benefit of others. I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in Philippians 1. It's verse 24 where he declares, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, for some of you, this is your life verse, but not in a good way. But uh, to explain what I'm saying here, Listen, we should take some time to consider the difference between the flesh and the flesh. There's a huge difference. And just to be clear, the Greek word sarx, which is translated flesh, uh, it's, it's used in reference to the physical body or more specifically to the soft substance of the skin that covers the bones and the organs and whatnot. At the same time, the same Greek word sarx, This can also be used of the sinful nature of fallen man. And in this sense, the Greek word sarx is used of the carnal cravings that war against the spirit of every Christian. One example of this is found in Galatians chapter 5. It's verses 16 and 17 where Paul uses this word sarx in reference to our sinful nature. And he does this by declaring, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the sarks, the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now here in these verses, we find Paul using the word sarks, not in reference to the the skin that covers our bones and organs, but no, this word sarks in this context refers to the depraved desires that we still have, which are in conflict with the leading of the Holy Spirit. And just to be clear here, Paul presents us with a list of the things that he goes on to explain as being the works of the sarks, the works of the flesh, or the works of the sinful nature. And this list includes adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. These are the works of the flesh. And and in this context, flesh refers to the depraved desires found within this list. And these depraved desires are still found within the heart's of those who are bound in these earthly bodies. And that's why Paul says, hey, don't don't walk in the flesh. Don't, Don't walk according to your depraved desires, but rather walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can deny the lusts of the flesh. Now, in light of this definition of sarks, and as we consider the difference between the flesh and the flesh, let's take a moment to ask, well, what was Paul talking about here in Philippians chapter 1? Look with me again at verse 24 where he says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, to remain in the sarks, 
is more needful for you. As we take a closer look at this verse, we should take a moment to ask, you know, was Paul suggesting that he needed to continue living in sin for the benefit of the believers there in Philippi? Was he saying, it's more needful for you that I remain in the sinful nature? Because that would be a benefit to you? Is that what Paul is saying? Well, of course not. If that's what he was saying, it would, well, that, that would really sarks. But uh, that's not what he's saying, right? Paul wasn't using the word flesh in this context in reference to his sinful nature, but rather he's referring to the soft substance of his skin that was covering his mortal body. And in this way, Paul is assuring the Christians there in Philippi that, you know, he's ready to remain in his physical body for the benefit of the believers who still needed, uh, you know, to to follow his ministry. And, And in other words, Paul was willing to remain in his natural body so that he could continue to accomplish his apostolic calling until the day when his ministry was completed. And while I have no doubt that Paul was ready to receive his glorified body in the resurrection, well, he was still willing to remain here in his earthly body, which I'll remind you was suffering from some sort of physical infirmity that he called a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but it's something that he prayed for the the Lord to remove, and the Lord said, no, my my, my grace is sufficient for you. And so he's still in this body, which, which had been beaten. He had been persecuted. He had been stoned to death and left for dead. And uh, I mean, just somehow the Lord decided to, to, to raise him back up at that point. And, you know, but no doubt that, that he was like a horse ridden hard and put away wet. And I have no doubt that he was ready for it all to be done. That he was ready to, to be glorified in a resurrected body. And yet he was willing to continue suffering for the sake of the Christians there in Philippi and also for our sake. You might not know this, but as Paul is penning these words there in that Roman prison cell, there were still six books that he hadn't yet written that we now enjoy. This includes Colossians, Philemon, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Hebrews. Yeah, if, if Paul went ahead and went home to be with the Lord at this point in time, we wouldn't have these books. And I don't know about you, but I've been blessed by these six epistles of Paul as well as the rest of his writings. I thank the Lord that Paul was willing to put off the day of his glorification so that he could accomplish his apostolic ministry here on the earth. At the same time, he was completely confident in his glorification. And to prove my point, let's just consider one thing that he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's beginning at verse 50 where Paul declares this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that the flesh and the blood of these natural bodies cannot enter into the heavenly kingdom of God. And the reason why is because these bodies were born under the curse. That's why we die. Remember, death is the result of the curse which was brought on the world because of the sin of Adam and Eve. These bodies are cursed and they cannot enter into the heavenly kingdom of God. Thankfully for us, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will eventually receive a glorified body in the resurrection. And listen, Paul was so confident of this that he goes on to assure the believers there in Philippi that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's complete confidence. To believe that our life lived for Christ will eventually result in a resurrected body where we're glorified and, and, and that it's far better in this way, that's complete confidence in something that he hasn't yet seen himself. Well, this brings us to our third and final point because listen, Christ not only provides confidence through the prospect of salvation and Christ not only provides confidence through the promise of glorification, but Christ also provides confidence 
through the progress of sanctification. And to explain what I mean by this, let's turn our attention back to the point that Paul is making here in Philippians chapter 1. Let's look once again at verse 25. Here Paul goes on to declare, Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Now as we take another look at these verses, We find Paul, he's continuing to communicate his confidence in the fact that he would eventually be glorified after his apostolic ministry here on the earth was completed. So he says, being confident of this, well, uh, uh, being confident of what? Well, Well, that to die is far better. To be in the presence of Christ is far better. Being confident of this very fact, he was willing to stick around for a little longer to make sure that the Philippian Christians were continuing to progress in their Christian walk. With this as the goal, Paul assured the Christians there, the church in Philippi, that he was ready to remain with them for the sake of their sanctification. And to to understand this commitment, let's take a little closer look at our text today because it's there in verse 25. There Paul declares, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress. That word progress Well, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of the advancement of those who are moving forward. So so like when when you're on when you're when you're on thirty-five in rush hour traffic, no progress. There's no progress there. You're not moving forward, right? But when you're making progress, you're moving forward. And in the context of this passage, Paul is referring to the progress that occurs when believers move forward in faith, resulting in the progress of spiritual sanctification. And just to be clear, I want to take a moment to point out that the word sanctification, it first refers to the separation that occurs at the moment of our salvation. In that moment, Christ consecrates us. And so this word, word, uh, word refers to the consecration of the Christian. But not only that, it also refers to the purification of those who trust in Jesus Christ. Here, here's how you know, Paul puts, uh, puts this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He declares this in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which again, remember, includes separation, consecration, and purification. The will of God for us is our separation, our consecration, and our purification. And a lot of Christians will oftentimes ask the question, well, I just want to know what God's will is for me. Well, there it is. You want it? There it is. Your sanctification that you would be set apart from the world, consecrated under Christ, and purified through the process of uh, this this progress of sanctification. Now listen, the born-again believer has been saved through justification. Salvation begins with justification. And salvation then eventually culminates in glorification. But between these two points, from justification to glorification, there is the process or the progress of sanctification by which we are purified more and more every day. Obedient believers are being purified by the power of the Holy Spirit as he sanctifies us each and every day. And in order to grasp this progress of sanctification, I want to consider the way that Paul elaborates on this in his letter to the church in Colossae. So hold your place here in Philippians. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Colossians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Christian who is failing to make progress through this process of sanctification is simultaneously failing to walk according to the will of the Lord. Because remember, it's God's will for us to be sanctified. And listen, the Christian who is failing to walk according to the will of the Lord through sanctification, then begins to struggle with doubts which uh, keep them from having confidence in Christ because they're looking at their life. They realize that it doesn't look like Jesus Christ. And then they begin to wonder, are they even saved? And yeah, that's a great question for those who are living in sin. That being the case, we should take some time to consider the way that Paul describes this progress of sanctification, which ought to be true in the life of every believer. And so look with me here, Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Paul declares, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above 
not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here we find Paul uh, kind of summing up what happens between justification and glorification. From the moment of your justification until the day of your glorification, there's something that ought to be happening in the minds of every believer as we turn our attention from the carnal things of this world to the heavenly things where Christ is seated. And so we see that sanctification begins after we're justified. It begins in the mind. We're, We're to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated. We've been called to seek the leading of the Lord as we move forward in the faith. And in this way, the Lord Jesus helps us to overcome the carnal temptations that we still find in our hearts. I want to consider how Paul goes on to explain this here in Colossians 3. So look with me there, beginning at verse 5. Here he continues to say uh, this. He says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Here in these verses we find Paul helping his audience to understand that the believer who is moving forward on this path of purification will begin to crucify their carnal cravings through the obedience of faith. At the same time, Paul also reveals that the path of progress that leads leads us in purification, well, it's not just about the do-nots. In other words, Christians are not only called to crucify their carnal cravings, but we've also been called to put on the new man so that we can move forward in the obedience of faith. And and so Christianity, it's not just about the things we're not supposed to do, but it's also about the things that we ought to be doing. And with this as the goal, let's consider how Paul further explains this here in Colossians chapter 3. Look with me there, beginning at verse 12. Here he declares, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Here in these verses, we find Paul presenting us with this list of objectives, these discipleship directives, if you will, that Christians ought to be engaging in. And from this, we can see here that the path of purification is not just a denial of depraved desires, though it encompasses that. But listen, the believer who thinks that they've arrived because they don't smoke and they don't chew and they don't run with those who do, you know, well, okay, I mean, good for you for abstaining from certain sins that you may have once you know, engaged in, but are you doing the things you're supposed to be doing? Christianity isn't just about the do-nots. It's also about the do-dos, I guess. It's not about just abstaining from sin, but also engaging in the good works that the Lord is calling us to engage in. And this in the context of our Christian fellowship. Our fellowship. We're called to forgive one another and encourage one another and be at peace with one another. And, and, and all of this within the body or the church to which we've been called. We've been called to put on the new man so that we can accomplish our calling in Christ by serving one another within our fellowship of faith. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the directions that Paul goes on to present here in Colossians chapter 3. Look with me there beginning at verse 16. Here Paul declares, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, 
do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging every Christian to seek the sanctification that takes place as we allow the word of Christ to fill our hearts with grace and, 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 the, and the sort of grace then that leads us to start singing the praises of our Savior and within the context of our fellowship of faith. In other words, the progress of sanctification occurs within the context of the corporate worship service. And what this means is that it's not just about the, the born-again believer realizing that they need to stop hanging out at the bar, but we also need to start hanging out at the church. You know, some Christians, they, they, you know, they're not hanging out at the bar anymore, so they're, so they're good. It's just like, yeah, but you're not really plugged into your church. The born-again believer should, should do both, you know, walk away from the, the, the carnal cravings and, and walk towards the things that we ought to be doing. And as we consider the path of progress that Paul is presenting here in Colossians chapter 3, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I a believer who is truly moving forward in faith? Or am I still failing to move forward in the faith because I'm still pursuing my own sinful pleasures? Listen, if you aren't sure, then it'll help you to know that the Christians who are truly advancing on the path of purification, they rejoice. They, they, they rejoice in the joy of their faith, and especially as within the context of the Christian community, the Lord raises up leaders who can bring godly guidance that includes both exhortation and conviction. And to make my case, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 1. I want to draw your attention back to something that Paul says here in Philippians 1, beginning at verse 25 there, Paul declares, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul here is connecting the dots between the progress of sanctification that he mentions there in verse 25 and the joy of faith that led these believers there in Philippi to rejoice in knowing that Paul would eventually be released from prison and then come back, stand in their pulpit and rebuke them. I mean, that's pretty much what, what most of Paul's letters were about, right? Rebuking the Christians for how they got off base. And these Christians, he says, I know you're rejoicing in the fact that God is going to deliver me. He is going to allow me to come back to your church. I'll stand in your pulpit and I'll preach the word of God at you, which will bring exhortation and conviction of sin. They were rejoicing as they considered the possibility of Paul's return to the pulpit because they wanted to hear more about the Lord. They wanted to learn more about the prog progress of sanctification. They wanted to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And from this, we can see that those who are truly moving forward in faith on the path of purification re rejoice when the Lord uses godly leaders to challenge them and correct them and point them back on course. Do you love Correction? Do you love direction from the leaders that the Lord raises up in your life? With this question in mind, I want to consider something that King Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 12. It's verse 1 where he declares, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I didn't say it. That's what King Solomon said. Listen, the believer who is truly traversing the path of purification loves the correction that comes from godly leaders who provide them with, with, with the guidance they need. If you truly are moving forward on the, on the path of sanctification, then you embrace the instructions and the corrections of the leaders that the Lord has raised up in your life. And the reason why is because those who are moving forward in the faith, those who are on the path of purification, well, we're wise enough to realize that we've got a long way to go. The, the, the Christian who thinks that they've just about arrived because, you know, they, they aren't doing the bad things they used to do, listen, we've got a long way to go. When we compare our lives to the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the humble person will recognize we're not even close. Every humble Christian will rejoice then in receiving the instruction and the correction of godly guidance because this is what we need so that we can move forward on this path of purification. 
Sadly, it's the, the proud person who is trusting or have, they have confident in, confidence in their own flesh to, to you know, uh, engage in the work that they think they need to do in order to purify themselves. And with that, I just want to point out that when we get to Philippians chapter 3, it's verse 3 where Paul says this, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. We should have zero confidence in the flesh. Listen, if you think that you can work perfection out in your life because of the things that you're doing, your confidence is in the wrong place. Because on the day that you do it sort of well, you're proud. And on the day that you don't, you, you, you mask it and you hide it and, you, and, and you're, you're struggling in your assurance. That, that's not a good path to walk. It's foolish for us to think that we can have confidence in our own flesh. And with that being the case, the believer who wants to become a confident Christian, well, we must realize that our confidence must be in Christ and in Christ alone. The reason why is because Christ alone is the only one who can save us from the weakness of our fallen flesh. Now, for the Christian, listen, I get it. The Spirit's willing. The Spirit is willing to walk with the Lord, but the flesh is weak. And with that, we must find our confidence in Christ and in Christ alone. With all this in closing, I, I want to encourage you to remember that Christ is the one who provides confidence through the prospect of salvation. And so if you lack confidence in the prospect of your own salvation, well, I encourage you to remember that those who trust in Jesus Christ have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this seal of the Holy Spirit will remain until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord right now, you can have confidence in Christ through the prospect of salvation. Christ is also the one who provides confidence through the promise of glorification. And so if you lack confidence you know, regarding what's going to happen in the afterlife, I encourage you to remember that our resurrected Redeemer has promised to provide us with a resurrected body in the resurrection and in Christ, we can have this confidence. And finally, Christ is the one who provides confidence through the progress of sanctification. Because listen, those who are being perfected on the path of purification today by faith in Jesus Christ, well, we can be confident that he is going to complete that good work that he began in us. And with this, I encourage you, let's continue to move forward in the progress of sanctification. And as we do, we will become those believers who have complete confidence in Christ. Let's pray.